0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. Her poetry, both as a body of work and on an individual basis, exudes a sense of control, accuracy, precision. Elizabeth Bishop published only 101 poems in her lifetime, the kind of carefully managed output that someone of exacting standards would deliver. Her well polished poems give off an air of serenity, even tranquility, the air of a master at work. And so it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking of her as being so in life as well. This surely must be the work of one of those superhumans who are wiser than us, and abler, and better adjusted. Happier, they seem from the outside but scratch the surface of a bishop poem and the themes of struggle and deep sorrow emerge. This is a poet and a person who knew sadness, longing, grief. And suddenly the precision and accuracy and control look less like a person who has calmed the ocean, and more like a person who has constructed, and perhaps is clinging to, a life raft. We talked to Pulitzer Prize-winning biographer Megan Marshall, who knew Elizabeth Bishop personally about one of the 20th century's greatest poets, and also one of the most important, and also one of the most unassuming and discreet. Elizabeth Bishop and Megan Marshall, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson, your host for the day. Well, I guess for a lot of days. Thank you for giving us a bit of your time. I hope we live up to your expectations. Luckily, I'm bolstered in that hope today by one of my favorite people to talk to about books and poetry, Megan Marshall, who really knows her stuff. We've talked to her before about Margaret Fuller and the Peabody Sisters And now Elizabeth Bishop. Well, is Elizabeth Bishop in that tradition, or is she a new thing, a new development? She's another literary woman coming from New England, but the 20th century feels different from the 19th century, doesn't it? Cars and airplanes and and television and so on. Does it feel that way to a person born in the 21st century, too, or is that just me? a product of the 20th myself. I'm young and modern. The 19th, those are the old fuddy-duddies. Young people, is it all just history to you now? Is, that, is the, Are the 19th and 20th centuries flattened out? They seem indistinguishable. Well, that's a different question, I guess. But my question for Megan was whether the life and works of Elizabeth Bishop was just a natural, logical progression from the Peabodys and Margaret Fuller, or if it felt like a different world altogether. Elizabeth Bishop was born in 1911, which is kind of surprising that it was so far back. I think of her as being about the age of my aunt, and actually, she's quite a bit older than that. Maybe she'll always feel like an aunt. That's her age—a hundred years from, two hundred years from now she'll feel like she's about the age of your aunt, whoever you are, whatever age you are. She was born in Massachusetts to a life marked with sadness almost immediately. Her father died when she was a baby, not yet one year old, and her mother suffered from mental illness and was institutionalized when Elizabeth was five. She then went to live with some grandparents in Canada for a while, her mother's parents, and then From there, she moved to Massachusetts to live with her father's parents. She was precociously gifted at poetry, publishing poems in her teens. Early on, she developed a desire to polish her work, often editing herself out of it a bit in the process, editing out the personal in favor of the universal. It makes her poetry a bit less overtly biographical than, say, Robert Lowell, her great American poet, counterpart, and personal friend, but I think it also has made her more timeless. She was friends with Marianne Moore, another poet whom she met at Vassar College, along with some other fellow writers like Mary McCarthy. After graduation, Elizabeth Bishop traveled widely New York, then Europe, several countries in Europe and North Africa, and then she lived in Key West, Florida for five or six years writing poetry, and then she fell in love with a Brazilian architect, Lota de Macedo Suarez. Hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And they lived together for 14 years until Suarez tragically took her own life. She returned to the United States then, Elizabeth Bishop did, started teaching at Harvard. She was now in her late 50s and This was an era where she was winning prizes and receiving recognition for her poems, for the entire body of work. Today, she's often anthologized, perhaps overly anthologized for one poem in particular, One Art, which is an example of a villanelle, and so the anthologists can't resist, have a modern villanelle in there. It is a great poem, but Bishop has a lot of great poems. She's better than a one-poem wonder. She was also writing at a time when confessional poetry was the norm. Ragged lines, effusive outpourings, her poetry stands on a less crowded half of the lawn, careful and controlled, balanced, well-tempered, in the sense of pottery or anything that comes out of a crucible being well-tempered, finely wrought, less prone to lumps or cracks. Here's a quote by a critic named Ernie Hilbert who said, quote, Bishop's poetics is one distinguished by tranquil observation, craft-like accuracy, care for the small things of the world, a miniaturist's discretion and attention. Unlike the pert and woolly poetry that came to dominate American literature by the second half of her life, her poems are balanced like Alexander Calder Mobiles, turning so subtly as to seem almost still at first every element, every weight of meaning and song poised flawlessly against the next, End quote. Let's hear one of those poems and then talk to our guest, Megan Marshall. I love a lot of Bishop's poems, and I recommend to you A Miracle for Breakfast, One Art, Crusoe in England, The Fish. It really, it's not hard to read all 101 Bishop poems, and they're worth your time, so pick up that collection if you are so inclined. I was really close to reading you The Fish, which is kind of a spectacular poem. I love that poem and the ending. A Miracle for Breakfast is one of Megan Marshall's favorites, but I will read here Filling Station, which is about a trip to a gas station that is run by a family and bishops. Empathy does the work. She starts Wondering about the family, where they live, what these objects are doing here, why were they chosen, and what this all means. Filling Station by Elizabeth Bishop Oh, but it is dirty, this little filling station, oil-soaked, oil-permeated to a disturbing overall black translucency. Be careful with that match. Father wears a dirty, oil-soaked monkey suit, that cuts him under the arms, and several quick and saucy and greasy sons assist him. It's a family filling station. All quite thoroughly dirty. Do they live in the station? It has a cement porch behind the pumps, and on it a set of crushed and grease-impregnated wickerwork. On the wicker sofa, a dirty dog. Quite comfy. Some comic books provide the only note of color, Of certain color. They lie upon a big dim doily. Draping a tabaret part of the set. Beside a big hirsute begonia. Why the extraneous plant? Why the tabaret? Why, oh why, the doily? Embroidered in daisy stitch with marguerites, I think. And heavy with gray crochet. Somebody embroidered the doily. Somebody waters the plant or oils it, maybe. Somebody arranges the rows of cans so that they softly say, SO, 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 to high strung automobiles. Somebody loves us all. That is Elizabeth Bishop, that twist at the end the ray of light suffused with sadness, the dirty, dirty filling station, the black translucent filling station, the oil that soaks everything, and yet that doily. Who is embroidering the doily and putting it out there for us? Isn't that the the, the world? Isn't that the universe? Somebody has done this for us. Somebody has arranged those cans so you see S O, and then you see a little so and so and so. They've tilted the cans or arranged them so that you see those echoes. It looks nice. Somebody's doing this. These dirty people with their dirty dog. Somebody is doing this. That's how I feel when I look out at the world, too awful, it's horrible, people are horrible to one another, there's war, there's poverty there's hunger, but there's those moments too there's the sunrise there's the beauty of the clouds floating across the sky The green grass the leaves on the trees, somebody loves us, somebody loves us all, even us high strung humans okay (sighs) Oh. I have seen it, said Randall Jarrell. That's the key to Bishop's poetry. This feeling, she said, all her poems have this, this feeling. She has seen this. I have seen this. But it's more than just observations and even more than just observations plus their impact on me. It's I have seen it. And this is what it means more broadly in a larger societal, even cosmic sense. It looks for magic or mystery or the mundane, turning transcendent. The bigger qualities like love and endurance and miracle. These observations seem minute, but they are grand. They look like pawns, but they move like a bishop. Wouldn't it be great to hear from someone who knew Elizabeth Bishop, who had a chance to see her in action, teaching, perhaps, during those years at Harvard? Well, your wish is my command, dear listeners. Megan Marshall is just such a person, and she joins us to talk about Elizabeth Bishop after this. Okay, joining me now is Megan Marshall, the Pulitzer Prize-winning biographer of Margaret Fuller, the Peabody Sisters, and today's subject, Elizabeth Bishop. Megan Marshall, welcome back to the History of Literature.
1: Thanks for having me, Jack.
0: So I have to say, for a long time, I knew Elizabeth Bishop primarily through her poetry. I didn't know much about her life. I had this idea of what her life must have been like, and I was completely wrong. So maybe maybe we'll get to my misconceptions later. But let's start with you, because you actually had some personal history with Elizabeth Bishop.
1: Yeah, I first have to say that I think she would have liked it that way. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It was a very (laughs) private person.
0: (laughs) So did she seem (laughs) private when you met her? Where were you when you first encountered her in person?
1: Yeah, very much. Uh, Well, I was a dropout from Bennington College, and I was living in Cambridge working for Harvard College as a secretary. And I began taking some courses. Well, I was depressed. I dropped out because I was depressed, and I started writing poetry. Maybe that's the main thing
2: hmm. and
1: then I was kind of interested in getting back to school work but and uh, I could take some classes at Harvard as a special student, and I applied gave my little fledgling poems to Robert Lowell's poetry workshop class. Robert Lowell then was one of the most famous American poets. yeah, and I didn't really know much about that i didn't I hadn't really read much of his poems, but There it was. I applied for the class and I got into the class, Mm. amazingly. Um, And uh, he was, I didn't know, you know, I didn't know. And well, I had bought a book of Elizabeth Bishop's poems in a used bookstore, but I didn't know her poetry well at all. And she she came to class one day and read from a notebook of kind of a black folder in which she had poems that were being published in the New Yorker, but not yet published in the book. And it was just the most amazing thing, first of all, to see a working poet, a woman poet, and see how they carried around their little notebooks full of yeah. manuscripts. <laughs> um, but she was not anything that you would imagine a poet to be, really. She looked more like I, my aunt in La Jolla, who was a community kind of civic-minded lady. She was wearing a wool suit and had kind of neatly cropped gray hair and could have been just anyone, but she was Elizabeth Bishop. Yeah,
0: I'm just fascinated by this. Was, did she open with some some jokes and humor to, to warm people up a little bit? Did she just walk in and start reading her poems or was she talking about uh, craft and, and so on?
1: She She was mostly relating to Cal, as she would have called him, Robert Lowell, um, who was at the head of the table. And, you know, there are probably 10 people in the the room, students of various ages, some of them, you know, graduate students. And um, it was just as if it was the two of them having a bit of a conversation that we were eavesdropping on. So she wasn't really addressing us. And she... I think she was probably even a little nervous, you know. She I, mm. I learned later was a very shy person and she had one poem that she intended to read to us which was a poem called Poem which is uh, very somewhat autobiographical and and um about her Canadian childhood and and the landscape there and but all of her poems even if they begin in something kind of childlike they become Universal. It's a great poem and about life and the memory of it. Yeah, comes from that. But then he said, "Well, read, uh, read more. Read Crusoe in England, which was a, quite one <laughs> yeah. of her longer poems, uh, right. and um, it was just amazing." And you know, I later, as I was researching her, her life, I found that when she first read Marian Moore's poetry when she was a college student, she said, "I had not known poetry could be like that." And and that was very much how I felt listening to her. I had oh. not known poetry could be like that and made me want to be a poet and think that a woman could be a poet. I mean, obviously, I knew that there was Emily Dickinson and and right. plenty of St. Vincent Millay, I guess. Oh, right.
0: but, um, <laughs> Elizabeth Barrett Browning. You know,
1: there was Robert Lowell and his gang, many of them men. I, I just, you know, it was great to see a woman in that position, although I would also find out while researching that she hated being put in that position. She wrote mm. in a letter to someone she'd, around the same time, given a talk at Dartmouth and and was just appalled that one of the, I guess, newly co-ed students there, you know, said, well, when you write, do you think of yourself? Do you think about being a woman when you write? And she, she was just appalled, you know, mm. of course, wouldn't think about that, you know. Yeah. She hated to even be suggested that she'd put poems in an anthology of women poets because she was older than the feminist poets that we were starting to idealize, Adrienne Rich and Anne Sexton and Sylvia Plath. and, And she had experience being sort of sidelined as a woman poet. She didn't see any upside to it. And she thought poetry was poetry, regardless of who wrote it.
0: Yeah. And then you got to take another class that she taught.
1: Yeah, so I after that spring when I was taking some classes as a special student, I applied to transfer, and and then I did take some poetry workshops the following year with Jane Shore, who was a wonderful young poet and now a fabulous poet and teacher. And I then it was like a year and a half later that I ended up in Elizabeth Bishop's class, applying again, and you know it was the way it was done at Harvard—you applied, and the teacher would read through your poetry samples and select 10. And there I was one of the 10. It was wonderful and affirming. And and I didn't know at the time that that would be the last poetry workshop class that she taught at Harvard and because she was at retirement age. So I think I'm not sure she knew it'd be her last. She hoped to get another year or two in, but it didn't work out that way. So there I was and excited to be in the class. And I arrived and she was not even as warm, not that she'd been all that warm in the class of Robert Robert Losa, <laughs> but She was with a friend and smiling, but here she looked pretty grim hmm. and told us, day one, she didn't believe that poetry could be taught, that it was something that you had or you didn't have. You could work on it, you could get better, but she didn't really, you know, believe much in these classes. But we would go, go on with it. I mean, yeah. it was her job and it was our class and And she actually called the class, she didn't like the idea of workshop. She also hated the term creative writing. Uh, All writing is creative. So what's this creative about? But she called it advanced verse writing. And so what she felt she could teach us was verse form. So the ballad form with its rhyme scheme and couplets, rhyming couplets and meter and that sort of thing. And there were some people who were accepted into the class who said, I don't want to do this. I'm writing free verse. This is 1976. Why are, right. why are we learning rhyme? The villanelle. And, yeah. Meter? <laughs> yeah. So some people did drop by the wayside, but I was interested in that sort of thing. And as it turned out, and I was reasonably good at it. So to me, that was inspiring. And I just, you know, was kind of there for the experience of, being in a room with her. At the time, I guess she was not as famous a poet as Robert Lowell, but there was just something kind of magnetic about her mm. her reclusivity. <laughs> you yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, it was kind of fascinating to see someone who was so uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. um, and to find, you know, when might she warm up? She sometimes would start telling stories about Marianne Moore, or, but she, she was having dental work done, and she had asthma, and she missed a lot of classes, and that was also exciting when Frank Bedart would come and teach in her place. He was a great friend of both Bishop and Lowell and and he substituted in Lowell's class when Lowell was wasn't able to come as well. So I really learned a lot from him. He was teaching then at Wellesley, I think, but he's of course, you know, gone on to be a really eminent influential poet. So that was lucky. But what happened at the end of the class, end of the semester, she invited us to her apartment on Lewis Wharf for a party, which I also found as I was researching afterwards that so she had never done that before. Huh. I think she must have liked some of us, although I didn't notice in the writing <laughs> that she thought there were some bright young boys in the class. Uh-huh. So I don't think I was one of the people she was happy to have (laughs) over necessarily. But there we were with poet friends, Frank Bedard and Lloyd Schwartz, who's a wonderful poet, and, and others. And she just felt much more at ease there and was smiling and probably were having drinks. And Alice, her partner, was in the background probably serving the drinks. And I just saw a whole different side of her that I think if I hadn't had that experience, I'm probably would never have occurred to me to try to write her biography
2: mm.
1: you know but i think also that experience was part of what made me interested in biography even though i didn't write about 20th century people initially i was interested in the private sides of public people
2: yeah.
1: and how did those parts come together
0: and did these people in particular i mean you were born in california and mm. you probably could have moved to L.A. And, and written about Hollywood directors or something. But you were lured to New England. What was it that was drawing you there?
1: Mm. Well, you know, I was a kid who liked little women. And in yeah, and, uh, yeah. and, and, uh, high school, when you're studying American literature, then, you know, we were reading
0: Walden Pond. Uh, Thoreau and, 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 yeah.
1: And yeah, yeah, and Hawthorne. And right. actually, my parents had lived in Cambridge for a few years at the beginning of their marriage before I was born, and my mother sort of persisted in thinking that the uh, East Coast was the height of um, intellectual culture. Intellectual and artistic. Yes, she was an artist, (laughs) and she had worked for the city planning board in Cambridge. And I don't know; it's just all. it, It seemed like a place to try to go. And I, you know, in the '60s in California, it was. I don't know. I just, I didn't feel like, I mean, my, my classmates in high school were really bright, but they wouldn't sit and talk. I guess I was like Margaret Fuller. I wanted to have yeah. conversation, yeah. I I wasn't having that conversation. And as soon as I got to the East Coast, I was.
0: Yeah. And then you're in a class with Robert Lowell and Elizabeth Bishop.
1: Mm, yeah, yep. Yeah. Wow. And both of them, I mean, Lowell, very much identified with New England. Elizabeth Bishop should be. I, you know, She spent some formative years in Canada after her, her father died when she was a baby, and then her mother's family was from Canada. And she went and stayed with them in a little town, very humble, for five years, although her mother was really unhinged by the father's death and ultimately was sent away to a mental asylum. That's when... Elizabeth came back down to Massachusetts and lived through the rest of her schooling and high school there and Walnut Hill School in Natick. Anyway, she was essentially an orphan. Mm
2: -hmm. And
1: as orphans sometimes do, never really feel at home anywhere. So that's why I'm not sure she would say she was a New Englander. She identified with Canada and she also spent significant time in Key West and in Brazil and but her uh, outlook, I think, was of a bit of a Yankee <laughs> so,
0: yeah. yeah, the sort of hard bitten she was struggled with alcoholism and
1: yes, and sparing the praise <laughs> right for the student.
0: so she um, <laughs> so she was she her mother was admitted to a mental hospital when she was quite young, and then she never saw her again, but she was aware yes. that her mother was alive and institutionalized.
1: Yes, she was, although she would sometimes tell people that her mother had died because it was easier to yeah, say that than, yeah. than the truth. And then her mother died when Elizabeth was about to graduate from college at Vassar, which had been a you know largely positive experience with a lot of strong-minded women. Mary McCarthy was a um, classmate, or maybe the year ahead, I can't, I can't remember exactly, but uh, there were just really interesting women there, and she could write for the newspaper, and and she was editor of the yearbook, actually. Uh, But her mother died, uh, oh, and actually, that's also when she met Marianne Moore because uh, the librarian at Vassar was a friend of the Moore family and was able to bring about an introduction. And she met T.S. Eliot, who happened to come to campus to see a production of one of his plays, and she interviewed him for the school paper. So she was very much focused already on becoming a poet if she possibly could. But her mother died that just as Graduation was coming, and she had not seen her in all that time and and you know in the social scene of college, there was a lot of drinking, and she began to drink that's one of the things she says is that you know that's when she really began to drink too much and it's sad that it started so early but mm-hmm. yeah. uh, there was she didn't know it at the time, but there had been also some alcoholism in the family so yeah. um, among the men, but she later began to think that might have been part of her problem but in the 1930s, understanding of drinking and understanding of asthma, which she also suffered from, and of lesbianism, which she didn't suffer from, she enjoyed, but it was something she felt she had to hide. All of this combined to, well, to make her the poet she was, someone mm. who could speak very eloquently out of a space of silence, in a sense. She very much, she kind of resented that she was often described described as a poet who could describe. Description was her great talent, but there was always more to what she was describing than simply the images.
0: Yeah. Okay, let's take a quick break and then come back and dig into the poetry more. Okay, we are back. Elizabeth Bishop I guess I should say among the other things that was perhaps leading to her being guarded is she was a lesbian in an age when it was difficult to come out.
1: Oh, the, the phrase come out didn't, you know, certainly didn't exist yeah. in the 1930s. and And in fact, by the time she died in 1979 i guess it was and gay pride gay liberation was on the rise but still she was quite suspicious of it having lived for 68 years
2: hmm.
1: feeling that for her safety really she needed yeah. to conceal her her love life and uh, she once was you know in that period of the 70s, she was showing off her apartment to someone. I can't remember now who it was who remembered this, but she said, closets, closets, give me closets. <laughs> this was a, a gay male poet friend, and and they both knew what she was talking about. So, I mean, it wasn't too long before that, I mean, people could be fired. She, she was the poet laureate, or what was called the poetry consultant to so the Library of Congress, became the poet laureate in the very early 50s, at a time we know of the Red Scare, but there was the Purple Scare that was considered that homosexuals in the State Department would be compromised mm-hmm. if mm-hmm. you know the communists found out and could threaten to turn them into spies if they threatened to reveal their their homosexuality. And so there she was in Washington at that very time when people were being fired from the State Department because of their sexual orientation, and it just was a different time that we certainly hope will not come back. Yeah, But it, it also, though, I think it gave her a sense of community with the women and the men. I mean, many of her friends were gay men as well throughout her life. You know, there was a sense of being a, a band of comrades, and she liked that.
2: Mm.
0: She had friendships with Robert Lowell and, and Marianne Moore, and she had her long-term partner and, and so on. But was she in groups or... Was it just close, tight, small groups of people, or what was her kind of friendship status with others?
1: Um, that's an interesting question. She always was kind of more comfortable with a few people. Yeah. Um, but sometimes there would be a cluster of people that she was friendly with. She's very good friends with James Merrill and sometimes you visit him with pictures of them playing croquet with her friend, John Malcolm Brennan, um, who was gay as well, at his house in Duxbury. You know, one of her first deep loves was for Louise Crane, who was someone she met at Vassar, and a very wealthy woman, and kind of interested in music and arts and whatever. They had a relationship for a while, but Louise wasn't one to be monogamous, and Elizabeth felt really hurt by that, and that was a big sort of turning point in her life. And they had, had a house together in Key West. But I'm mentioning this because when Elizabeth came back to the U.S. after having spent a great deal of time in Brazil, um, Louise Crane was a very good friend of hers again. And like, she was there for the croquet game <laughs> with mm-hmm. um, Brennan and Merrill, and or at least often in in that kind of setting with Elizabeth. So she really did the best she could to keep up friendships. And a lot of times that was by way of letter once she had moved to Brazil and fallen in love with Lata Jasader Suárez, who was a quite a powerful character as well. Mm. That was her kind of her marriage. They had exchanged rings and lived together built a house together. And they had what you would probably call a marriage for a period of time. And Lotta had adopted a son who was around two. And there was a kind of gang of friends there. And sometimes people would visit from the U.S. Lowell visited from the U.S., but he was having a breakdown. So that didn't go (laughs) go so well.
0: (laughs) So I always get the feeling with Lowell and, and the other American poets that they really valued Elizabeth Bishop's poetry and that part of their relationship was informed by this sense of, well, this Elizabeth Bishop is the real deal, that this is not somebody we're just friendly with because she happens to be around or because she's, you know, fun to be with, but more she really is a good poet. And Yeah. yeah, and I'm wondering if Elizabeth's poetry was important to the relationship She had with Lada, or was that, or did they have a different kind of connection? And Lada just, um, you know, let her write poetry and knew that it was part of what she did and who she was. But it wasn't, or was Lada also drawn to her because of her
1: poetry? Well, Elizabeth wrote a kind of a love poem early, early on, called "The Shampoo." I think, Mm. I think Lada, you know, was drawn to artistic people and was herself of an artistic temperament. They definitely shared an aesthetic. You know, mm. they collected art together. They collected calder, you know, stabiles, and they collected antiques. They had somewhat different tastes as far as that was concerned. But uh, as far as the antiques they wanted to collect, because Elizabeth liked the culture of Brazil, and Lada had grown up in Brazil, and she was, was interested in European artists a little bit more. But, but at any rate, I think, you know, one of the things that drew Elizabeth to stay in Brazil was Lada said, I'm going to build you a studio in which you can work, and you can just mm. write poetry here. So she did believe that the writing was very significant. She was supportive of it. But Elizabeth didn't publish that many poems in, in her life, only about a hundred. She, you know, you could say she had writer's block. I'm not sure that's really correct. I think she wrote the poems that grew inside her from memories or observations or experiences and they They grew very slowly. So Mm. I think, you know, a lot of sometimes started thinking, what's she really doing out there in that studio? And a lot of times she would be writing letters to people, (laughs) typing letters, and maybe working on some poems, Uh, but not until really the uh, imaginative momentum fully took her over. And then she could sometimes write Fairly quickly, something that had been brewing for decades, even. Mm. So I think that she didn't, I think Bishop didn't really want to have another poet nearby or that near to her. It might have made her feel even worse about writing so slowly. You know, she was always feeling that Lowell was turning out scads and scads of things, and pretty much everybody else is turning out scads of things. But, you know, what you said about the poets of her generation, they acknowledged that she was, as you said, the real deal, and and they were right. I mean, it's her Mm. poems that have have lasted in some ways more than, well... More than Lowell's, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people will still turn to him for inspiration, but I think Bishop is much more widely known. Yeah. So a lot of
0: what she's sort of famous for is being guarded and not being as explicit and confessional, even as poets around her were really moving in that direction. And you can see why she would have reasons to be protective of certain sides of her life and everything, given the era that she was writing in. But I don't know, there's always this tendency to think, well, wouldn't her poetry have been better if she had been freer to express herself if she didn't have to write with this restriction? But I, she doesn't seem like that kind of poet anyway. Um, you know, even if she was writing today, I don't know that her poetry would be that different.
1: Well, you know, you, you can't pick somebody up and move them to a different era or century. And I think that the constraints were a plus for her Yeah. in a way. I mean, she was drawn to poetic form and People love the sonnet because there's freedom within. And her her own sonnet, which was the last poem that she completed, and it was published after she died. But it was the last one she sold to the New Yorker before her death. It's called Sonnet, and it's just a couple of words per. Line. It's a very inventive kind of sonnet. But I think that the reason that really that she speaks to us still is that she managed to kind of boil down her or universalize her experience mm. in a way that, mm-hmm. that was quite not so usual for the time. And, and it's why anyone can read or listen to or memorize one art, her, her great villanelle, The Art of Losing Isn't Hard to Master, and take something from it. Uh It was written about her fear that her lover then in Cambridge, Alice, was leaving her, but as she revised and revised, and that's a poem that she wrote in the course of maybe just a month, unusually, that it ended up being so convincingly universal that many people have read it as being about the loss of Lata, who died Mm. um, of an overdose of some antidepressant medication and perhaps as a suicide, it's really not clear, but she was obviously just devastated by that. Elizabeth was and wanted to write an elegy, and and I think in a way one art is that elegy, but it also was provoked by Alice saying she was going to go off and leave her and get married to a man, and the initial drafts of it are very clearly about Alice and have more specific details that make you know that it's about Alice, but Over time, as she revised, she made it a universal poem, and people can read it at funerals or maybe even weddings. Mm. I don't know. It's Mm -hmm. a great poem. Right. So
0: So it was a conscious, aesthetic choice to say, I'll universalize this by taking out some of the more personal details, because that will make it about me and about my localized issue, and instead I'll I'll find the, the general truth in it.
1: Yeah, and well, it also began as, as a real kind of sob story. And mm. she still referred to it when she, she, uh, finished it as a tearjerker of a poem, but it really is about, there's irony to it. You know, the art of losing isn't hard to master. So many things have the intent to be lost, but their loss is no disaster. And she's playing with kind of series of lessons about how to deal with losses that get bigger and bigger and bigger and ends again with, yeah, you see the art of losing isn't hard to master. And you know that inside it is hard. It is terribly hard, but she's kind of putting the best face on it. And it's a poem that Acknowledges loss, but also gives a pathway to carrying on.
2: Mm. Yeah.
0: I think that's where my misconception of her life came from because you read a poem like that, and I just assumed she was really put together and she was, I thought of her as the disciplined one, the responsible one, the adult in the room. And I didn't really know about her own. Struggles. I thought maybe she was sort of observing them in someone like Robert Lowell, and then being able to comment on the human condition, but was not going through that herself. And instead, she had a very—I uh, mean—darkness was just part of her life from the very beginning.
1: Yeah, yeah. She presented the fact that the men could get away with drinking so much Hemingway and mm. others, you know, whereas she for, for a woman to be drinking was. Just truly shameful. She felt it was shameful and and wished she could overcome it, but really, really couldn't. Um, Right. So I think, as I said earlier, she was essentially an orphan, you know, an orphan grown up and was always, you know, never felt entirely safe or grounded. Or when she did, it was when she was in a, a love relationship that seemed secure. But how secure could that be in the world that we're in, which is so you know, she had to hide those relationships. Mm -hmm. I think that the writing came out of that sense of loss and needing to speak in the way that she could to feel known and to be present. Yeah. What is her
0: attitude toward the writing process and the decision of hers to write poetry? Are you getting the sense from her letters or any of her private writings that she recognizes this is something I have to do to to stay afloat or maintain my sanity is to write poems? Or is that not how she viewed it?
1: No, I think she would not have said that. It might be true, but she, she wouldn't have said that mm-hmm. the way sometimes writers would now. I think, you know, I have to write yeah. in order to live, in order to deal with my pain or whatever it is. But I think she viewed poetry as an art and one that she was born with a knack for, Mm -hmm. and it was something that she, you know, in some ways maybe lost herself in the writing of it. I mean, that writing one art as Alice was leaving did kind of keep her together for a month or so, and then when she finished the poem, and Alice did leave, at least for a while, she did really fall apart. But it's not something she would have said that she was... I think, though, she longed for... Just because she cared so much and was a poet, she longed for a sustained period of creativity, and occasionally she would kind of manage that. But in some ways, poetry was a saving gift, but also she was constantly tormented by wishing to do more.
0: Was it a hard choice for you to decide whether to write her biography? Is this something you wanted to do since you met her, or when did you turn to... Elizabeth Bishop in your list of biographies that you've written.
1: Well, I had always wanted since writing the Peabody sisters, my first book which was about 500 pages and about three women and very a very long project that took me 20 years. I kept thinking it should be possible to write a short biography <laughs> and when I started in on Margaret Fuller, I thought, well, she lived just 40 years, I I, I could make a little novella. Yeah. You know, a biography in the shape of a novella. And that didn't happen. You know, I think I was kind of fooling myself into the project by thinking of it that way. And then I was invited to write a short biography by James Atlas, a wonderful biographer, Mm -hmm. no longer living, who used to edit a series of short lives. And he said, I'd love to have you do something. And I had, as I said, always wanted to write a short life, so I thought, well, why not Elizabeth Bishop? She published just 100 poems, and mm-hmm. and I kind of knew her a little bit. That's part of the, in the end, a little subplot in the book, my running afoul of Elizabeth Bishop. But I won't reveal how that mm. <laughs> happened or what happened, but you have to read the book to figure that out. But anyway, I thought I could do a short, almost like an appreciation But as soon as I started in on the research, I learned that there's a lot of new letters in the archive that hadn't been used by other biographers. Her partner, Alice, had died in, I'm trying to think, 2011, something like that. And she had kept some very significant batches of correspondence back. Shortly after Elizabeth died, she sold Elizabeth's papers to Vassar College and Everybody thought that was everything, but in fact, Alice had saved all their own correspondence. She had saved a handful of letters that Elizabeth wrote to her psychoanalyst in the 1940 s that were very kind of autobiographies of her upbringing and revealed a lot about a very difficult childhood and early loves and and also a lot about her writing process at the time and There were other significant a lot of letters to may Swenson and other a poet she had met at Yado, the writer's colony, and nobody had really looked at those in writing about Bishop. And uh, also Lada's last letters before she died, those hadn't been seen before. So I, I saw that pretty much every stage of Bishop's life had to be seen anew. And so the book, I had to take the book away from the series of short lives <laughs> and make it a real biography, which still had this component of my memoir sort of interlaced with the biographical chapters. Do you feel like
0: her life is kind of a, does it flow out of the 19th century New England that you were looking at with Margaret Fuller and the Peabody sisters? Does it just seem like the next step in that progression? Or does it feel like it's a leap into a completely different world?
1: Well, it's a little bit like going into Technicolor, going to the land Mm. of Oz, because, Mm -hmm. um, suddenly there were color photographs, not a lot of them, but they're starting to be color photographs. And the the letters I was reading were, were type letters and, uh, there were postcards and that sort of thing. But there were some surprising connections, particularly between Margaret Fuller and Elizabeth Bishop, both of whom really their lives, the deaths of their fathers were very formative. And there were two sort of eerie, congruence of childhood memories in which margaret fuller had a strong memory of being on the stairs when she was a little girl and saying to herself what does it mean that i am this margaret fuller what what am i to do and one of elizabeth bishop's best you know most wonderful poems in the waiting room is the very much the same thing you know she realizes sitting there amongst the grown-ups while she's waiting for her aunt to have some dental work done she says why am i one of them what does it mean I am an I, I am an Elizabeth. And I thought, you know, this is this -hmm. is just too big a coincidence. I don't know whether you can say this comes out of a sort of New England Mm -hmm. propensity for self-scrutiny, but maybe it does.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Okay. The book is Elizabeth Bishop, A Miracle for Breakfast. And the author is our guest, Megan Marshall. Thank you so much for joining me on the history of literature.
1: Thank you, Jack.
0: That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Megan Marshall for joining me. Her book is called Elizabeth Bishop, A Miracle for Breakfast, available at fine bookstores everywhere. Speaking of miracles for breakfast, we have some great shows coming up, miraculous ones even, which you are welcome to listen to as you enjoy your breakfast, or maybe as you hasten out the door, headed for your subway train, or maybe on your daily walk as you take in the trees or luxuriate under the open skies. Wherever you go, we can go too. That's how this works. <laughs> and, so we... <laughs> and so you will please want to subscribe so you can hear us talk about Nabokov and his life in the cinema. Attending the cinema, we'll talk to an interviewer of artists and creative types to see what he's learned about that. We have a Russian poet who's going to stop by to tell us about her amazing life leaving the Soviet Union for a life in America, and a professor who's written a book called Black Shakespeare about the blindness that comes from taking in the bard from a position of whiteness. Some surprising results there. And Henry James. We probably won't get to him until May, maybe. But we're going to tackle one of his greatest works, A Reader's Delight. And some other goodies for you as well. 104 shows this year, people. That's our goal, and we are on our way. Speaking of which, it's time to be on our way. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.